Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the MedSLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have incur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the Med SLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the Med SLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously, we want to work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well and that's not something I always was very confident in and the Metal SLP Collective has given me so many resources and so much actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just the other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician. Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University. And there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive 
and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need and I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive, collaborative environment. Can't say enough about it. If you're interested in joining us, enrollment opens December 9th. You can go to medslpcollective.com and either get on the waiting list or if it is past December 9th, you can join. So um, enrollment will be open from December 9th through December 13th. So I hope you'll join us then at medslpcollective.com. This is episode 163 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and holy cow, this is probably one of my most favorite episodes ever, which I say that all the time, but oh well. <laughs> this is a great episode. Holy cow, everybody. So this is Isabel Lawton. Uh, she left her cushy job as a healthcare recruiter seven years ago to make a difference as a medical SLP. She is very passionate about patient advocacy, professional development, mentorship, and continuous learning. She has years of experience with inappropriately wielding her Latin temper and has learned the hard way that the best way to communicate with her peers is to start with heart. Oh, she's so wonderful. All right, everybody. Before becoming an SLP, Isabel worked in healthcare staffing for seven years after earning double bachelor's degrees in international business and marketing. One of her favorite things to do is bridge her business background with her role as an SLP to target program development, identify training and mentoring opportunities, and create relationships within her facility to better market and brand SLP services. And we also discovered that we live about 20 minutes apart from each other, and I cannot wait to hear more from her. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Isabel. Hi, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes. Oh, good, 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 good. So Isabel is, has been a member of our MedSLP collective for quite some time, has always just had such wonderful words of wisdom for everybody. And then at our collective live event that we had a few months back, I, I forget what, what you even said, but it was something about like conflict in the workplace and you just had such a beautiful response about it. And I was like, wait, hold that <laughs> thought. Let's do a podcast. <laughs> so a month or two later, here we are. So tell the people who you are, Isabel. Okay, thank you. So I am a med SLP. Obviously, I work here in acute care presently. I work for actually the largest Catholic hospital association in the country. So I've been really fortunate to have a good network of speech paths to work with and collaborate with. I've been here for about two years. Prior to that, though, I worked in our local inpatient rehab hospital and I was the primary um, pediatric speech pathologist, although my caseload was mixed. So I did see quite a bit of adults really across the lifespan. But if our pediatric census was high, then that was a lot of what I saw. And it was all mostly trauma. You know, I think like something like 70% of our caseload was brain injuries. And uh, before that, I did a brief stint in the schools. I <laughs> discovered pretty quickly it wasn't for me. It's a very noble setting, but wasn't for me. And I had an opportunity to join the inpatient rehab hospital. So I did, and honestly haven't looked back since medical 
speech language pathology is definitely my passion and I feel really lucky to have found it. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Okay. So, um, really, I think the comment that you're referring to from the collective was that I was talking about how I had sort of a controversial request with, um, my colleagues and my manager about a patient need and, it was maybe an unpopular opinion, uh, but I felt like it was the best way to go for the patient. And so I really took my time to do some research and got some amazing feedback on the collective on how to kind of craft my message. And once I felt confident that I knew what I was talking about, I was able to go speak with my peers and speak with my manager. And we had a really fruitful conversation about how to best proceed for that patient. And so I talked a little bit about how you have to make sure that in your messaging, what people are hearing is your message and not your fear, right? Because it can be scary to have those tough conversations. And so I think that led to a request to talk a little bit more about how to have a difficult conversation with your peers, colleagues, doctors, physicians, really anybody in your bubble who can impact your ability to provide good patient care. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. All right. So where should we start? Okay. So I think I want to talk about why is it so dang hard to have a conversation, you know? And so I wanted to be prepared for today. So I did a little bit of digging online and found that there's really no statistic or percentage of the population that avoids conflict. And the reason why is because everybody does it. Literally, every it, it would be like asking people, do you eat dessert? The answer would be yes for somebody in some form, right? And so um, really what it comes down to is that it's uncomfortable and unpleasant and people like to be comfortable and happy. So if we are faced with a situation where we have to make ourselves uncomfortable, we typically most of us do everything in our power to avoid that. I did a little bit of digging and I found out that where this typically arises from is it's, it tends to be sort of a people pleasing behavior. So if having a difficult conversation could even remotely result in an uncomfortable outcome or maybe even potentially harm a relationship or an interaction, our desire as human beings to be pleasing and to be helpful sort of overrides that. So it's like a lizard brain kind of reaction, if anything. And it's just this sort of deeply rooted fear that a lot of people have of uh, upsetting other people, you know, and it's really as, I think, as straightforward as that. Yeah. That looks like a lot of different things. I think we can all relate to this. You know, we deny that an issue even exists. Oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. No problem. Right. Or we just completely avoid the situation. I've literally had instances where I've seen somebody walking down the hall that I need to talk to and I do quick about face and like go in the other direction. <laughs> um, or we, you know, change the subject and um, probably most harmful would be to sort of have an environment or an air of um, resentment. Yeah. I feel like when you have something that's important to you and you don't talk about it, you can harbor that resentment and that can lead to a really toxic relationship. I think that's so important, especially with SLPs. I think, you know, for some reason we are whatever the forgotten therapy or, you know, in some hospitals we're the forgotten discipline. And, you know, you just hear so many SLPs talk about how burnout they they are. And, you know, but then I start talking to some of them and I'm like, well, but have you been advocating for what you want? Have you asked for what you want? Well, no, I'm not sure how, I'm not even sure how to talk to people. So this is such an important topic because I think it, it really can just open everything up for some people. Absolutely. And and it's really, it's, I think it's funny is not the right word to say, but when people say, oh my gosh, I had the conversation and they said, sure. Yeah. Like, why was it that easy? And well, because sometimes it can be, you know, sometimes it's not that easy, but sometimes it is. And you don't know until you actually have the conversation. Right. And what you just said is right. 90% of the time, 90% of the time, everything's fine. When we have consistent sort of patterns of disagreement and conflict, the reason for that is because we never had the right type of conversation to overcome that conflict. And so you're stuck. It's not that it's not the outcome that you could get. It's that you haven't resolved the issue to get to that outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So beautifully said, Isabel. (laughs) Thanks. I found that employers spend 2.8 hours of their work week dealing with some form of conflict, and you will never guess how much money that equates to in losses. It's insane. 
$359 billion in losses. I believe it. Yep. Yeah. And money talks, right? So I think lots of people are motivated to fix it. 49% of workplace conflicts are due to warring egos. And I feel like we see a lot of that in the medical SLP world Yeah, with maybe people who hold positions of authority, you know, or tied with different titles. It's, it's so funny that you say that because I, you know, kind of as I've grown is, you know, I, I'm an SLP at heart. I never had any never had any idea I would be doing what I'm doing today. I had no idea I'd, you know, essentially be a CEO of a company that employs so many people. I had no idea. But what's really in the last year, the the number one thing that I've really looked for when hiring people is the ability to have these kind of conversations is really just emotional intelligence mm-hmm. and how you can handle yourself and know that there's going to be conflict and we're going to have opposing SLP views. You know, we're going to do things that you know, may go against the grain, but how you're able to have those conversations and how you're able to, you know, I don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of yes men. You know, I want people to say, Hey, Teresa, let's not do that. Like, let's try this. Or have you thought about doing that? And and that's, I, if I'm so proud of anything, it's really the team that I've created that I work with this year, because they are, they're not afraid to have those kind of conversations with us. And we don't, yeah, like I'm just not, I don't have the patience to kind of deal with the drama and things like that. Right. And right. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I love, I love that you said that because it's so true. So many people, you know, don't, don't realize that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, another little quip that I found was that 95% of employees, I mean, that's huge. That's practically everybody. They say that getting training and conflict resolution is advantageous, but only 19% of people actually go out of their way to learn how to do that. So it's really in, in, incongruous right? That we have this recognition that it's a problem and it needs to be addressed, but maybe it's a lack of resources. Maybe it's not knowing where to start. So hopefully we can dive a little deeper into some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So um, how do we get better at doing this, having difficult conversations? So I'm going to step on a little bit of a soapbox because I'm really big on empowering people and advocating for people from all walks of life, patients and clinicians. I'm like, I feel like sometimes we need to advocate for ourselves more than our patients, but I think that's another topic for another day. Anyway. um, (laughs) So uh, it's so important. I think we do a really beautiful job. Most of us, uh, especially those of us who are in the collective, but also just all SLPs, I really feel like a lot of us are intrinsically motivated to improve. We want to do right by our patients. So we're great at investing in ourselves professionally, like, with CEUs and taking these courses to learn these new techniques and strategies. But I don't know that we're so great at investing in ourselves professionally, right? And taking courses that deal with things like emotional intelligence and having these hard conversations. I think that would be my number one piece of advice is if you have some money squirreled away, maybe use X percentage of it for your clinical stuff and another percentage to hone these softer skills that you yourself as a CEO just said is a top quality that you look for. And let me tell you, I have participated in so many interviews for new hires and this skill always shines through. So if you can get good at it, your resume is going to get you in the door, but your ability to have this type of conversation and to be a good communicator is what's going to get you the job. And it's going to keep you in that job and create leadership opportunities in the future. Awesome. I think we can just end the conversation here, Isabel. I think you just nailed it. That's it. Our work's done. There you go. Awesome. You're welcome, everybody. (laughs) Yep, 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 we're done. So, I mean, I, like, you know, I I do, I think it's almost, in a sense, just as valuable, if not more, to be good at having a crucial conversation than it is to have good clinical expertise, because you can learn that stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, I think another thing, too, that I feel like I've observed is that we are are a passionate breed, us SLPs. Yep. I mean, when we have our mindset and we are convinced there is nothing that gets in our way, right? So we have to be so careful because there is a difference in coming from a place of passion and coming from a place of aggression, right? And those two are so close. They wear the same clothes. They just have different heels on, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They do, they do. (laughs) And so so they're easily misconstrued. And so I, you know, we, we can be passionate and respectful, and tempered, and clear, and concise, and confident without being aggressive. And that is something we really should all work hard towards. Awesome. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah, of course.
so I guess I have some recommendations on resources because it's like, okay, great, Isabel, Teresa, this is fantastic talk. You wonderful, thank you. But what do I do now? And so I wanted to provide some resources for people that I thought we could go over briefly and maybe just kind of talk about. And I love that you mentioned emotional intelligence because it's on my list. Awesome. So it's pretty awesome. great. Yeah. So I do have a personal rule that I just like to impart, usually with my um, student clinicians or my externs. I have a personal rule that for every two kind of fun things that I do, I do one professional. So it's like a two to one ratio. So anybody who knows me knows I am probably unhealthily obsessed with true crime, like podcasts. <laughs> and I posted this meme about like, it's either serial killer stuff or Christmas stuff. So we're either slaying or slaying, yes. you know, like, a, yes. like I love show. it. I forget somebody was trying to promote one of my podcast episodes and it was like, they took a screenshot of their phone and it was like my episode. And then like the five below it were all like murder mystery. Like yeah. I was like, okay, cool, cool. Good mix here. So that could have been my screen <laughs> yes. because that's totally me for every two episodes I listened to. I put, put on another one, right. That's professionally focused to keep me focused. Right. So some that I like, obviously, Swallow Your Pride. There's a lot of really great speech pathology podcasts out there, and I think everyone's pretty familiar with them. But a couple that maybe are not on people's radar, Brene Brown is like this. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's yep. just like emotional. Oh, she's amazing. There's no yep. other word for her. But yep. pretty much anything that comes out of her mouth is gold. So I recommend her for a listen. I gave her last two books away to um, my inner circle group this this last time. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, talk about growth. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And then um, Harvard Business Review, they have lots of different podcasts. So they have one called like Women at Work. So they have um, some that are focused more towards gender and others that are focused more towards industry. So I think, uh, you know, a little search for Harvard Business Review on wherever you get your podcasts could probably yield some good results. And just a little, you know, Google search, I think could be helpful. So that is kind of one digital domain, if you will. And so going back to maybe the more traditional areas, emotional intelligence. So how did you learn about emotional intelligence? Teresa? Did you like read the book? Yeah, or? I read the book and then I really, I'm such like a rabbit hole type person. Like I find something out and then I just go down every rabbit hole possible. But yeah, I mean, really, I just read the book and then there's actually this whole, um, I can't even think about it. I'm visually my old office because I had all the books lined up in my office. I'll have to see if I can think of the author, but, um, but he ends up writing for like corporate business leaders and really how to have these skills as a, as a business leader, but then also how to look for these skills in people that you work with. Um, maybe while you're writing that down, I'll kind of touch on that. Cause maybe some people haven't heard of it. I feel like it's pretty pervasive and it's common kind of in the workplace culture. So maybe most of our listeners today have heard of it, but if not, Basically, and please, please chime in because I know you have a lot of experience with this as well, but emotional intelligence really refers to the ability to perceive, control, and evaluate one's emotions, right? Not just your own, but that of others. So almost playing into sort of that theory of mind, which side note is cool because that's what we do as speech pathologists, right? A big area of our, one of our major domains is pragmatic language. And so this falls really nicely into that. So, you know, there's those three skills, right? This sort of emotional awareness. You have this ability to identify and sort of name, put a name on your emotions and naming things is powerful, right? And then an ability to harness your emotions. And so what that means is you take those emotions that you've just named and identified and you apply them to things like critical thinking, problem solving, um, or in our case, conflict resolution, right? And then um, the next one would be managing those, right? So regulating your own emotions when necessary, which can happen a lot in the healthcare world. It's do or die sometimes, quite literally, you know, your patients can, lives can be at stake, right? Yep. Um, so regulating that, but then helping others to do the same. And so I think um, developing the skill is not all, some people are born with this. And I think that's what the book talks about. It's sort of like this innate ability that some people have, but the good news is, is that if it's not innate to you, you can develop the yep. skill. Yep. So definitely friends, you know, read the book, listen to some audiobooks or podcasts if you can. 
um, and develop this skill because it is becoming an increasingly popular sort of must have for new hires, like you mentioned. Yeah. So, okay. So it's, so the author of that is Patrick Lencioni. Oh, okay. So he's written, like, I think I've probably read like 12 of his books so far. Um, just it's specifically written for business leaders, but there's so many, he writes them as almost like fictitious fables. So they read very like fun and funny but it's such a good message to get. And it's really just being part of a team and really just, just understanding how to, you know, you know that you're going to face crap, you know, you know that there's going to be conflicts, but really how you can work through those and navigate those and, and really be mindful of your own energy. And I think that's something that I've really tried to work on too. And another series that I've really been into is called levels of energy is another book series. Um, I'm on the third book of his. I can't think I'm horrible with authors names, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's really, you know, a big thing that I just, I've been constantly having these conversations with people I work with. And also my family members is you have to be responsible for the energy you put into the world. Um, and, and like you said, if you're constantly aggressive or you're constantly argumentative or you're just always bringing drama, you know, it's, it's, you're not going to get anywhere. And Yeah. Oh gosh, you were, you were completely in my brain because that yeah. <laughs> comes up later. I wrote that down too. So it's just awesome. Yeah. It's so great to, to get that feedback, you know, cause here I am in the trenches and I am not in a position of formal leadership, right? I'm not a business owner. I'm not a manager at my job, but something I learned really early on is that I cannot control necessarily whether or not I am in a formal leadership position, right? Or a manager, but I can control whether or not I behave like a leader. Beautiful. Right? Yep. And so taking the time to hone these skills will help get you there. Yep. Right? Yep. So emotional intelligence, why is it awesome? Well, let me tell you. A little bit of an infomercial here going on. <laughs> yes. So people who have good emotional intelligence are able to accept criticism and responsibility well. They're able to move on after making a mistake. I don't know about y'all, but I have some of that good old Catholic guilt. And when I make a mistake, boy, do I perseverate. And so I have to remind myself that it's not healthy and honing in on my emotional intelligence helps me with that personally. Um, being able to say no when you need to. People who have good emotional intelligence are great at that. Sharing your feelings, solving problems in ways that work for everybody, right? which is important in a group collaborative group environment, having empathy. I think sometimes in the hustle and bustle of the day to day that can get lost. Um, and so we need to maintain that having really great listening skills. And this one is one of my favorites listed knowing why you do the things you do, right? We all get caught up in that rat race of the nine to five going to work. And so take a step back. Why are you doing what you're doing? Right. Direct your focus. Um, so, how do you improve your emotional intelligence? Uh, read the book, listen to podcasts, Harvard Business Review. I know I keep talking about them, but I love them. And I, you know, Teresa, I don't think I shared this at the top, but um, before becoming a speech pathologist, I went to school for international business and marketing and did that for seven years and was in kind of that quote unquote business world. So I have a lot of resources from that time in my life my former life, as I like to say, like I'm some kind of spy yeah. and then uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> became a speech pathologist. So anyway, the Harvard Business Review has their 10, they do these collections of articles where they do like 10 must reads on change management or on leadership or on different topics. And they actually have a 10 must reads pamphlet book on emotional intelligence. And it's fantastic. Awesome. Um, and then practice practice in a safe space with somebody who can give you feedback that helps you make corrections and move forward in a positive way. Um, so, you know, listen, pay attention, right? Listen to people without responding, empathize, put yourself in their shoes and then reflect. Reflection is really powerful as well. When you're thinking about the response that your interaction has had with somebody, think about the emotions that are in play there and let that shape future interactions. Yep. Yep. You know, I think what's, what's coming up for me right now as we're talking to is a lot of the interactions that I've had with therapists that I've had for my son too. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and I did a, I did an episode, one of our most downloaded episodes a few weeks ago, um, was really just about how to have hard conversations. Um, and, and I think this, this whole emotional intelligence thing, it really comes to be when you're either delivering bad news or not necessarily bad news, but just delivering different options. 
And there may not be a right answer, you know, written in there, but it's the way that you deliver this news. And I, you know, I met this new PT for my son yesterday that we took him to and just amazing woman all around. I, I'm so excited, you know, to work with her, have her work with my son, but just the way she delivered a lot of the information, you could tell she just was very intelligent, but just very confident in the way she could deliver it as well. And she didn't necessarily put her bias behind it. You know, she just would say, this might be a good, you know, avenue for you, or have you guys considered this? Or, you know, in my experience, I've noticed this, or in the literature, I've noticed this. And it just was a very mature explanation of all the options we have. And sometimes I get so angry because sometimes we go to different therapists and they're like, well, but you don't want to come here twice a week or, but you don't want to do these exercises every day. That's way too much work. Or, you know, but you don't want to have to buy these special shoes. You know, it's like, they just automatically make these assumptions and it, it's as a, as a mother, you know, trying to get all the help for my son that I can, like, put your biases aside and just maturely deliver all of the information to me. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's so important. Yeah. And that perspective, it's important because you have this unique position, Teresa, of being on both sides, right? Of being that clinician and that service deliverer and then being on the receiving end of it. And so, you know, for people who maybe don't have that unique perspective that you have, please believe us when we tell you that this is important. It'll make you better. I promise. (laughs) Um, On the topic of the Patrick Lancioni, I think you mentioned, um, have you heard of John Gordon? No. Well, he's kind of, I'm like, remember when I told you you were in my head, same kind of thing. He is somebody who writes these books on different topics related to business, which apply to clinicians because we are kind of our business in and of ourselves, right? We are a brand. When you go out and you're interacting with patients and doctors, you're marketing speech pathology of the profession. So they're highly applicable. But in the topic of having hard conversations, John Gordon, he also uses kind of that narrative storyteller sort of um, voice that you were mentioning with the other gentleman. Um, he has, his books have been um, adopted by Fortune 500 companies and you know, professional sports leagues and hospitals and nonprofits of so the whole gamut. Um, and so there are two that he has specifically that I want to recommend. One is called the Energy Bus. And again, it falls in line with the, what you were talking about earlier about how important it is to kind of expel that negative energy, right? And so how he, he has these sort of 10 rules that you can use to infuse your life and work and school and whatnot with this positive energy. So you know, not going into the book, but essentially that negativity, I feel like can be very pervasive in healthcare. Yep. Yep. We're dealing with bad news all the time. We are not working with patients who are healthy. We are working with people whose lives are changed and impacted. And that in and of itself is negative. That's a negative experience for that patient. So it can be draining emotionally and mentally and that burnout that you were talking about kind of comes into play. So it's nice, I think, to look at these sort of rules that he has, maybe post them up somewhere where you can look at them. And when you're feeling like you're in that place where that negativity um, is affecting you to the point where it's impacting your conversations with your colleagues and your peers, because remember, that's the message. The emotion behind the message is what's going to be heard, not the message itself. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. So if you're Debbie Downer and you're coming up with an amazing solution, that's going to save the day, but you're doing it in a negative way. It's not going to be, it's not going to translate. It's not going to track. Yep. So anyway, he's great. That book is great. Uh, and then the other book that he has is the no complaining rule, which I think is just kind of uh, funny when you hear it. You're like, what are you talking about? Sometimes the best thing in the world is to grab a glass of wine and vent with your girlfriends, right? Or your buddies from school. But in the culture of the workplace, again, being in healthcare, which is just sometimes a difficult setting in terms of um, negativity, that can breed a culture of complaining. Right. And we've all heard it at the nursing station. You hear, you know, your colleagues complaining about the call bell that's been going off every five minutes. And, you know, and it's just and it breeds the sort of and it's like this Petri dish of negativity and it stinks. It's awful. So this uh, book, No Complaining, will offer some really creative solutions to combat that. Right. So one of the things that I took from this particular book was semantics, which I think rings so importantly for speech pathologists, right? We're really good at semantics. So instead of saying something is challenging, I like to say that's an opportunity, right? So instead of saying, 
we have these XYZ challenges, I'll say, hey, I've identified some areas of opportunity. And boy, does that ring differently on the ears, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, be intentional with the language that you use and try to substitute some negative words for some positive ones and see what your outcomes can yield, you know? So... Um, so the next one that I have is crucial conversations. And this has actually come up a few times, I think, on the collective, but also in some of the medical SLP forums on Facebook. So this is a course that I highly, highly recommend. Disclaimer, I don't get any money from anybody for recommending any of the things that I'm sharing with anybody today. They're just things that I've, um, I use in my toolkit professionally that I feel have helped me improve as a professional. And I have years and years and years of a fiery Puerto Rican temper that has led me down lots of really bad roads. So I've learned the hard way that we have to do things differently. So the Crucial Conversations course, it's a book that you can get pretty much anywhere, but there is actually curriculum and a course that you can sign up for if you Google it. And I recommend going that route because when it's guided, I, I find it to be a little bit easier to learn but it's tools for talking when the stakes are high. So basically how to have a difficult conversation with even the riskiest of topics in a way that's psychologically safe and meaningful. And that safety is really important when you're wanting to get a message across. Um, kind of hitting the high notes for this. When do you have a crucial conversation? And this was the case for me, the case that came up for the patient that I had. It was a crucial conversation because the stakes were high. This patient had a peg. The discharge plan was not good. We did not have a lot of options. We were getting some pressure from the doctors to make sure that this patient could start eating. We weren't sure if it was safe to do so. The opinions vary. There were differing opinions on how to proceed with his care from all members of the medical team. And then the emotions ran strong. The, the parent, the caregiver of this patient was very upset that her loved one came to the hospital with no feeding tube and now had one and couldn't eat and eating was very important to this patient. So right out of the gate, we had a crucial conversation. So just to recap, a crucial conversation occurs when the stakes are high, when opinions vary, and when the emotions run strong. And so the importance here is dialogue, right? And what that means is free flow of information between the people having the conversation, two or more usually. If you're having a dialogue with yourself, maybe you need to take a break, <laughs> just get some help. I'm just kidding. Um, so between two people. And so the purpose of that dialogue is to fill the gap, right, with shared meaning. So what do you and your conversation partner have to contribute that allows you to understand the true intention of the conversation, like what the goal is, right? So the greater the information, the shared meaning in that pool, the better the decision is going to be for the patient, right? So it's important to get all of the information that's out there, but you have to do so in such a safe space. So what the Crucial Conversations course recommends is starting with yourself, right? Because we cannot control other people. We cannot control their reactions. We can control ourselves and we can control our reactions, even when it doesn't feel like it. And as a mother of two strong children, I often strong-willed children, I often feel like I cannot control my reactions, <laughs> but really at the end of the day, I can. And so you have to ask yourself what you really want. And the, the thing I want to caution people here is if the answer is winning, if the answer is, I told you so, that's not a good goal. Mm -hmm. Take a step back and think about what do you really want out of this conversation, right? Not just for yourself, but for the other people involved and for the relationship. Because at the end of the day, these are people that you have to continue to work with, mm -hmm. right? And then clarify what you don't want. I know what I want. This is what I'm not trying to get out of this conversation. And that can help keep the drama at bay because people can take offense pretty easily, right? And then think of and versus either or, right? How can we incorporate multiple solutions into a problem that help us meet our goal? as opposed to my way or your way, because we love that, right? We love being right, and we love the idea that our solution is the best one and the one that we're going to go with. But guess what? Everybody feels that way. So if that's the you know, modus operandi, if you will, for that conversation, you're not going to get anywhere. And then this, you have to be able to look for signs for when you're having a crucial conversation, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then are you behaving the way that you want? So I'd like to um, think, you know, if, if a camera was on you and you had that conversation replayed to you later, how much are you going to cringe at the, your body language and like the words that came out of your mouth? And was there any eye rolling? All of those things. 
So good so far. Yep. This is awesome. Okay, yep. great. All right. So, so things that you want to look at is you want to notice when the conversation, the partner that you're speaking with, right? Your conversation partner, how, what their reaction is to your messaging, right? And so the crucial conversation course talks about like two sort of reactions, right? Silence or violence, right? And silence, they refer to as withholding meaning and withholding information from that pool that we were talking about earlier with the dialogue. And then violence is like forcing your information in and I'm going to get it my way no matter what. So when you see those things, stop, just stop the conversation. Maybe you need to take a break. Maybe you need to clarify what the goal is in the conversation, but you definitely should not move forward if you see somebody shutting down or if you see somebody escalating. So how do you do that, my friends? <laughs> how do you make it safe? Well, you have to establish mutual purpose and mutual respect. People want to be respected, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I don't know, I not to sort of project my own feelings onto anybody who's listening, but being respected as a clinician is so important to me. And I, I get a lot of job satisfaction out of that. I may not have the best resources. I may not have the fanciest equipment. But if I know that my contribution is valued, then I'm, I'm happy, right? And I can make those other things work. So do other people believe that you respect them? If they don't, then fix it. I don't care how you do it, fix it. Find a way to make it better. Step out and apologize if you need to, right? Or do a contrasting statement. So something that I like that they suggest is, you know, let's say you're talking with someone and they're like, well, now I feel bad and I feel so guilty. And you go, well, let's, do, let's take a step back. My, my intention here is not to make you feel guilty. My intention is to find a solution that works for ever for you and the patient. So please don't, don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not coming at you with accusations. I'm coming to you to try to find a solution. And then you should hopefully see sort of like a de-escalation of the issue there. And so anyway, the other big aspect of crucial conversations, and then we'll kind of wrap this part up because it can get really long and, um, we want to keep everybody engaged here, is mastering your stories. Have you heard of this concept at all, Teresa? I have, yes. Okay. Oh, this changed my life. I'm not exaggerating. Boy, did I grow up telling myself all kinds of stories, right? I would imagine a scenario in my head, and I would look at somebody's face, and I would say, they're mad at me, or I messed up, or they're rude, are so inconsiderate. You tell yourself all of these stories. And so one of, I think, the most powerful aspects of crucial conversations is resisting those dangerous stories, right? And avoiding becoming a victim to those. And so a lot of times, you know, my colleagues will come to me um, and share a concern or an, and maybe a neg negative interaction they had with, like, say, a nurse, for example, right? And they'll say, oh, she doesn't understand speech therapy and they don't care about what we do and we're not respected. And I'll say, did she tell you that? Did she tell you those exact words? And they'll say, no. I said, well, you're telling yourself a story. Maybe that's the vibe that you're getting from the interaction. But if that's not what that person said, it's not fair for you to impose that belief on them. So anywho, um, those, the crucial conversations curriculum, I think is really strong and powerful and it. It, with enough practice, it can become second nature and people won't even know that you're doing it. It's a little bit like being a mind ninja. Yes. And they go, gosh, she's so articulate or he's so, he's so confident and polite. And every single time that he comes to a meeting, I find myself agreeing with what he's saying. That's not an accident. That's somebody who's really good at having a crucial conversation. Yeah. One of the big, I guess, kind of slogans that I always say is change your story, change your life. Yes. Because oh, it's, that. we just constantly tell ourselves these stories really. And it's like, if you just stop and change the story, you know, it's, it's very interesting what you can have these conversations with people and you're like, well, I don't like to do this. And the patient's like, or not patient, but the other person you're talking to is like, well, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well then either, either enjoy it, either, you know, change your perspective about it or change your life or, or change and don't do that type of thing anymore. So absolutely. I love it. It's just something when I, when I get into like a downward spiral, I just tell myself, Teresa, change your story, change your life. And then it's either, okay, I'm going to change my story about it, or I'm going to make a decision and, and get away from the situation altogether. Okay. Teresa, 
I swear, like you hacked into my computer and got my notes for this conversation. <laughs> that is the most perfect segue into my next oh. little tidbit here is locus of control. Um, gosh, like this is again, something I didn't hear about until I was a grown woman and my job. And the whole idea is sort of this, and it's from this 19, you know, the 1960s and 70s were really big on like psychology and social thinking and working out all those theories. So the locus of control is a theory from social learning. And basically what it says is it's a degree to which individuals believe they are sort of masters of their destiny, if you will, right? So somebody with a high internal locus of control is somebody who believes that they can sort of control those factors in their life, right? And then somebody with an external locus of control tends to put that on other factors, on outside factors, which that person cannot influence, right? And so it's almost like this belief that chance or fate controls their life. So a good example of this would be, let's say like a little fender bender, right? You're at a four-way intersection and you go, you stop at the light, you stop at the stop sign and you go through the intersection and you get hit, right? Somebody hits you from the side. Somebody with high internal locus of control might say, okay, that's awful. Thankfully, everyone's okay. Um, next time, what I'm going to do is just check one more time before I cross the intersection to make sure it looks like everybody's slowing down, right? I'm not accepting blame for the accident, but I'm identifying what I could do differently in that scenario that would lead to a different outcome, right? Somebody with an external locus of control would say, it's their fault. They weren't looking. I had the right of way. So it's not that internal versus external is good or bad. It's just sort of how we're built and how we're wired. But being aware of what kind of mindset you have allows you to make a step to change it, right? So in the situation where you're having a difficult conversation with somebody and maybe the outcome is not what you intended, my first piece of advice is to calm down, <laughs> take some deep breaths and do something to settle yourself and then reflect on it and think to yourself, what could have been done differently either by myself or the, the other person, right? To yield a different outcome. How could we have addressed that differently? Um, so I think, you know, all of those pieces that we've been talking about, the emotional intelligence and the, you know, the, the crucial conversation pieces and the locus of control, those things help shape you in such a way that when you have to have that challenging conversation with somebody, you have the skills, you're prepared, you know what it is that you need to deliver, and you can temper that message so that it's well received by anybody who's listening. And that is how you move mountains, not by having a temper tantrum or fit or being the loudest voice in the room, but by being the clearest voice in the room, the most intentional voice in the room. Love it. So... What do you do when things go wrong? Because <laughs> they are going to go wrong, right? It takes a lot of practice to get good at having these conversations. That reflection we already talked about, but working on your tolerance too. I think for myself, when I'm having a pattern of behavior, like maybe um, a doctor who consistently cancels my modified orders without talking to me about it, right? I have to work on my tolerance and clearly that's a conversation I need to have. Ask for feedback. You know, your peers see you day in and day out and they watch your interactions. Maybe they have some advice for you on how that could go differently and then reconstruct your plan. You know, maybe you had this grand plan going in and things didn't turn out the way you did and you can identify where things went wrong and then you can have another stab at it. You can always, second chances are real. They are there for everybody. Um, and so if it's something that you feel strongly about, you shouldn't give up on it. So, I mean, those are really the, the primary tenets that I operate under, you know, when I'm trying to have a crucial conversation with somebody. At the end of the day, I think it's important to me that people know that I'm coming to them from a place of deep love and respect and appreciation because we're all doing the best that we can. And some of us have better days and worse days, but we should not judge an interaction as final and let it completely sort of control how the rest, how future interactions go. Yep. So that's what I thought. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. As part of my background with international business, we learned a lot about cultural competence. And I feel like this is just in our faces right now with a lot of the social issues that are happening in this country, being respectful and cognizant of the differences in culture and how that can shape our communication, because a lot of people are shouting right now everywhere. And so um, there's just a resource I wanted to share this 
gentleman, this researcher, his name is Geert. I think I'm saying that right. It's Dutch and I speak a lot of languages, but Dutch is not one of them. Geert Hofstad, I think is his name. And he um, created a basically a model of a national culture. So if you literally type into Google Hofstede, H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E, Hofstede National Culture or something like that, he'll get the link. And basically, like, let's say that you are working with a population in an area that is of one particular ethnicity. So, for example, in Chicago, there's a really heavy Indian population, right? And you know that most of your clients are going to be from that culture, and you want to be really good at communicating with them. You could go to this website, type in India, and then type in United States, and you'll get this really beautiful comparison of these different cultural constructs that are important to to that culture. So for example, one of them is like individualism. Well, in America's is like in the 90s because we are a very individualistic nation. But a nation like Japan is going to be way down in the 30s. So when you see that contrast, you can sort of craft your message to appeal to whatever area is most important for that culture. And that's like really high level overview of it, but that cultural analysis can really help you reach your audience and help get your message across, I think, a little bit more clearly. I love that. Beautiful. That's Thank you so much. That's so valuable. Okay. I think that's that's honestly such the hard part about a lot of this is that, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Right. You know, and, it, and it's difficult to know what other other cultures and, and things like that. So that website sounds amazing. So thank you so, so much. Of course. Happy to share it. Yeah. All right. Isabel, this is amazing. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Any final thoughts? No, I just keep on keeping on, everybody. It's really hard times right now. I think um, the nature of this pandemic is increasing frustration and hardship for everybody. And I think emotions are high for everybody, maybe more often than they were before. So I really want to encourage everybody to try to stay positive and look for the good. And um, remember that you matter and you are valuable and your input is changing lives. So keep working hard. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. This was fun. (laughs) All right, Isabel. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills, and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.